Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. The City of Atlanta will host the ABA Litigation Section Annual Conference from April 19th through the 21st and will be the backdrop for outstanding CLE opportunities, networking, as well as social events, such as the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the section at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. The CLE program that I'm most excited about is the program entitled From Orangeburg to Ahmad, Civil Rights in the United States Then and Now, featuring Judge Childs from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, civil rights icon Dr. Cleveland Sellers Jr., who survived the Orangeburg Massacre, and his son Bakari Sellers, who is an attorney, CNN commentator, famed author of My Vanishing Country, a memoir, and one of the youngest state representatives in South Carolina history. We're lucky to have Bakari Sellers with us on the show to give us a preview of the program. Mr. Sellers, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you guys for having me. I look forward to the program. Well, let's start with the discussion of the Orangeburg Massacre, which I think is one of the least recognized events of the civil rights movement, where uh, South Carolina Highway Patrolmen opened fire on about 200 unarmed black student protesters. Can you tell us a little bit of how that event got started? I mean, that's a, that's a mouthful and a whole story. You did a good, summer, uh, good summarization of it. But the students, in essence, wanted to integrate the All-Star Bowling Alley, which sits back in a right angle on Russell Street in Little Orangeburg, South Carolina. The goal was to have three students go into the bowling alley, take a seat and be arrested, and they were going to fight this injustices in the court of law. This was on the night of February 6th. It, what instead happened was the students were met with uh, law enforcement. Law enforcement beat many of the students, and the students had to go back to their campus and heal not only their physical wounds, but their emotional wounds as well. And then came February 7th of 68, and nothing happened really that day. Tension was really thick. And then you came to February 8th. Uh, the students went back to the bowling alley, but this time they got the right idea. They came back to their campus and they built a huge bonfire. They didn't have any idea that state troopers would have deadly double-out buckshot, so the same bullets we used to hunt deer. And they didn't have any idea that it would be turned on them with deadly intent. And for eight seconds... They fired shots into the group of students. They killed three. They wounded another uh, 28, and they changed lives forever. And they left the pages of my state's history stained red with blood. And your father, as I understand it, played a big role in this event, uh, Cleveland Sellers. Is that correct? Yeah, my father was the only person who was incarcerated for the events of that night. My father was a member of SNCC. He was deemed at the time by Governor McNair and others to be an outside agitator. And so... While all the officers who were charged and tried and found not guilty, they charged my father with five felony counts. And uh, most of them were dismissed on directed verdict. But he was charged, tried, and convicted of rioting, effectively becoming the first one-man riot in the history of this country. Not for the actions of the night of the 8th, but the lead investigator from SLED uh, said that he remembered my dad standing on top of a fire truck, lighting a big and saying, burn, baby, burn, which just on its face is asinine, but in fact, in reality, is wholeheartedly untrue. So they were able to put my father in prison. His sentence was a year of hard labor. 
and this is a po- this is a podcast for litigators, and so and that includes a lot of uh, criminal attorneys, by the way. And so my question is, I guess you've already partially answered that, which is, you know, how did the criminal justice system treat your father? It sounds like pretty appallingly. Uh, and but tell us kind of about his incarceration and 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 what happened to him. Yeah. So my father's bond was fifty thousand dollars, which you can imagine how much that was in nineteen sixty eight. They actually housed him on death row because they didn't want him in normal circulation while he was trying to get his family to come up with that those funds. I guess appalling is is probably one way to describe it. There are probably many other adjectives you can use to describe the way my father was treated. But the criminal justice system it was one of the reasons my, my father, even to this day, has that charge on his record. He got pardoned by Governor Carol Campbell in South Carolina in 1990, but he refused to have his his arrest expunged because he always wanted people to see that injustice. And so on that night, injustice, it, it not only left mothers without their sons, but it, it left my my sister born without her father. My sister was born while my father was actually incarcerated at uh, CCI, which was Columbia Correctional Institute. And, you know, he, he went through the system, had a trial. Uniquely enough, one of the footnotes of this case is I, one of the first times, it may not be the first, but it's definitely one of the first times that federal civil rights charges were brought against law enforcement for killing um, black folk was in this case. And they, of course, were all found not guilty. My father was found guilty by a jury that consisted of two African-Americans. And we know that it was very difficult at the time for him. And subsequently, he went to prison and, you know, had to live that prison life. What are some of the things that you've learned uh, from your father over the years, especially coming from this incident? Kind of what were you, what have what are your takeaways that you've taken with you throughout your career? You know, I'm angry about February eighth than my father is. You uh, grow up with a purpose. You know, you you. My parents told us that we had to be change agents, and so I'm I'm being a change agent, trying to through my legal career. You know, my father, one of the litigators that my father grew up with. And learned to trust the most was Johnny Cochran, who, of course, we all know got his start representing civil rights heroes and icons in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Well, not 40s, he ain't that old, but in the 50s, 60s uh, and 70s. And, you know, I just I I have a, a renewed sense of intentionality and purposefulness and want to continue the journey my father started. And it's hard not, I guess, to look at Orangeburg and be reminded of the Black Lives Matter protests. How would you compare and kind of contrast how the justice system treated uh, those two events? You know, they treated them as being less than human. I think that the willingness to gun them down, the willingness to just shoot them, the willingness to treat them without any regard for life, and then to cover it up, because all of your listeners have heard about Kent State. I mean, this, this group of listeners to this particular podcast is an intellectual bunch and we've all heard about Kent State, but no one has heard about South Carolina State. But if the lessons were learned from South Carolina State, I dare say Kent State may have never happened. Why do you think these events don't get the kind of play that they deserve, I guess? And, and why are we not kind of learning from, from that history? Is it just a, a, um, an ignorance? Is it a, let, me ask that, an, uh, let me ask you that. Let me treat you with the Socratic method, I guess. But why do you think that is? I don't know. White people wrote the history books. That's part of it. But you also have black victims here. And so when we talk about the benefit of humanity, you have 
individuals where in this particular case in South Carolina State, all of the victims were black, including one young man who was still, uh, their names were Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond, and Delano Middleton. One young man was still in high school and he was sitting on the steps and he was coming to pick up his mother. He would always walk his mother home um, after she got off work as a custodian on the campus. And when you have that type of, and you actually didn't give a bad answer when you say white people wrote the history books, but when you have that type of, of racial animus towards people of color and the lack of human dignity at that particular time uh, that we still even see today, it's easy to treat them as such. It's even easy to cover it up. Uh, many people may or may not recall, but Governor McNair was actually on the short list to be vice president that year. So he took an aggressive effort to try to limit the fallout, although the New York Times and everyone else wrote about Orangeburg. He tried to limit the fallout and it ended up not serving him well because he was told he was stricken from the list because of the racial animus and violence that occurred in Orangeburg. And so, yeah, you, you, part of it is correct. But the more simplistic answer, I think, is probably true that the victims were black in this particular case. And it just keeps happening. And what is the solution that you see in your mind? What, what are things that we can do as litigators, as public servants, as folks who want to end this cycle? Uh, just continue to be just and continue to understand that anger is not a sin and that our righteousness is what's necessary, whether or not we are being criminal attorneys in a court of law, advocating for just sentences, advocating for criminal justice reform or police reform, or whether or not we're in civil court and we are trying to speak up and speak out for a person who is being treated unfairly by systems of inequity and oppression. And just I, I would always keep in mind the focus and the lens should not be on the sensationalistic rhetoric that we hear, but it should be more so on the systems of oppression that we have in this country. It's the reason why uh, Jackson, Mississippi doesn't have clean water. It's the reason why um, black women are still three times more likely to die doing childbirth than white women. It's the reason why we have a criminal justice system that we know is in tatters. And so I think if we keep our eye on those systems, we would be better off. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together. Do you have any sort of final thoughts you wanted to impart on our listeners today? Today is just an awesome opportunity, and this panel is an awesome opportunity because I get a chance to speak with my my father, and I think the lessons we learn from those people who have come before us are so important, whether or not they're jurists or otherwise. And so I um, am appreciative of the opportunity and appreciative of what the ABA does. And I don't look forward to what we have done or what we are doing, but I'm really, really, really excited about the future of what we will do. Excellent. Well, Bakari Sellers, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. And to learn more about the Orangeburg Massacre and to see Bakari Sellers and his father, Cleveland Sellers Live, discuss these issues, please join us at the Litigation Section Annual Conference. To register, please go to ambar.org slash SAC2023. Well, I'm very lucky to have a co-chair of the 2023 Section Annual Conference on the podcast today. Henry Chalmers is a partner at Arnal Golden Gregory in Atlanta. Henry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So this is a, a big conference for the section, 50th, 50th anniversary of the section being celebrated and a lot of great programs, social events, lots of great networking and wanting to give folks who are listening, perhaps never heard of the conference, the opportunity to learn more. So Henry, can you just tell us what is the section annual conference? Sure. The Section Annual Conference is the largest gathering of litigators in the United States for CLE and networking. It is the 
yearly crown jewel for the section of litigation. Hundreds of litigators arrive from all over the country, and in fact, some from other countries as well. And for about three days, there is endless amounts of CLE, endless amounts of interesting plenaries, a lot of networking opportunities, and just an all-around fun time to be in Atlanta in a great season. One of my favorite things about coming to section events, especially the SAC, is the different types of people that you'll meet at a conference. As you mentioned, folks coming from uh, different countries, certainly from around the United States, uh, you'll meet judges, corporate counsel folks, uh, CEOs. You'll meet, of course, fellow litigators from different practice areas, uh, young lawyers, law students. Uh, you'll meet just kind of a cross-section of folks uh, across the litigation landscape. Just a great opportunity to meet folks. And you'll have the opportunity to uh, network with folks, learn from these folks. Just a, a, a wonderful opportunity to uh, get to know and meet other people as well. So uh, you mentioned uh, programming that's happening at SAC. So what are some of the programs that you're most looking forward to? So there are 25 different CLEs, over 11 hours of CLEs, uh, including almost five hours of ethics CLE. So you can take care of all of your year's requirements and actually put some in the bank for next year with the Section Annual Conference. The, the things that are really exciting me are the three plenaries that we've put together. And plenaries are gatherings in a large conference room where everyone can attend. And we have re nationally renowned speakers at each of them. The first plenary is from Orangeburg to Ahmed, civil rights in the United States, then and now, um, sort of tracing the, the lineage of the civil rights movement starting with Orangeburg, which was a terrible massacre in South Carolina, actually during my lifetime in 1968, and how things have changed and how things haven't changed up until the present. The second one is resolving mass torts through bankruptcy, a non-debtor releases lawful and prudent. This is going to be really interesting, especially with the use of the Texas two-step in a lot of bankruptcy cases, and it's going to focus in addition on the Sackler-Purdue Pharma settlement in which non-debtors got a release as part of the bankruptcy. And then the third is going to be our annual Supreme Court review by former acting solicitor General Neil Katyal. And it's going to focus on the rise of conservatives and the changing court. All three of those are just going to be great. I'm really looking forward to them. Yeah, I love the plenaries that we have set up. And of course, we have the smaller seminars as well, some of which go into kind of the nuts and bolts of litigation. So we had, there was a program on 30B6 depositions and then other programs as well, such as business development. Uh, there's a program on how to grow your relationship with in-house clients. Um, there's a crisis management seminar for litigators. So for example, what do you do when a member of the media calls you? We're not trained on that in law school and probably haven't been trained on that in our law firm. So it's a really great opportunity to uh, get some uh, training on something that you may never even thought of. So really great programs uh, that the section has put together for us. So Henry, you talked about social events as well. What are some of the social events that you're looking forward to? So a great thing about the section annual conference is it's really focused on allowing lawyers to network with other lawyers and we structure in a lot of activities for that to happen. There is the initial welcome reception Wednesday evening. There are networking breakfasts Thursday and Friday. Anyone can show up and there's going to be a lot of other people there who are there for the same reason you are, which is to get to know people and to network. There's also 
open committee dinners Wednesday night, whatever committee you're involved with, get in touch with the co-chairs and see if they've organized a dinner. And then there are luncheons. And there are two luncheons that are particularly interesting this year. First is the John Minor Wisdom and Diversity Leadership Awards Luncheon. That's going to be on Thursday. And the introductory speaker there is the CEO of the Carter Center, Paige Alexander, a very timely person of speaking. The next luncheon is Friday, and it is just a networking luncheon. And the speaker there is going to be Hank Klibanoff, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and the host of the current podcast, Buried Truths, which looks at old civil rights cases and explores them in depth. He is a wonderful speaker. I've heard him speak a couple of times, and it's a real coup to get him to speak here. And then on Thursday night, there is the big 50th anniversary reception. It's going to be at the National Center for Civil Rights and Human Rights in downtown Atlanta. And that is going to be off the charts. A lot of events. And of course, you know, there will be opportunities for you to uh, network and, and meet with additional people. Um, of course, uh, there are smaller events that are, are happening uh, throughout the week the week as well. So let's assume, Henry, that you're a first-timer coming to the SAC, maybe never even been a member of the section before, but really interested in, in going to this conference. What are some uh, tips that you might have for a first-timer coming to the conference? Sure. And that's actually another thing I really like about the section annual conference. The people who put it together are very much focused on getting younger lawyers and even law students involved in the section, involved in the larger legal community that we're all part of. So one thing that the section has set up is meeting mentors. If you get in touch with the ABA section of litigation and ask for a meeting mentor, there will be someone there to meet you when you arrive, not at the airport, but at the conference, and will act as a bit of your Sherpa, a bit of your guide letting you know about where to go to get the CLEs and also introduce you to the people who you would like to be introduced to, particularly people who happen to co-chair your committees. It is a great way to have an introduction to the section annual conference. The other way in which the section really tries to make this appealing to law students and younger attorneys is there's a steep discount on the registration fee for law students and young attorneys. And so I don't think any young lawyer, and I don't think any law student should not look into going to the SAC merely because they're afraid what the registration will be. And the other thing I would add is, you know, I think the section does a really wonderful job in developing a, a great experience for folks, not just folks who have been with the section for a long time, but but new people. You mentioned the meeting mentors. I would say our staff for the section of litigation is is really incredible. They're great in answering questions and certainly want to make sure that if, you know, this is your first time coming to our conference, we want you to have a great time. So really you have the opportunity, you know, once you sign up, register for the conference, or even if you have questions about the conference, reach out to uh, somebody on staff um, at the litigation section. They're happy to answer questions. You know, one of the things that I do in order to make sure that I'm meeting the people that I want to meet. I often will ask for a list of folks who are in attendance or who have registered for the event. That way you have an understanding of, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm really interested in meeting 
you know, the in-house counsel at X company, or I'm really interested in, in meeting, you know, one of the more high profile speakers, you have an opportunity not only to, you know, meet them at the conference, but kind of do a little bit of research to figure out, okay, um, this, this is where this person's going to be speaking. This is, this is where I'm going to be able to meet them and then kind of have a plan of attack before you actually go to the conference. It's, it's a really great thing. And I've, you know, I've heard people say that, um, give that tip before, and it's really been successful for me. The other thing I would say is, you know, certainly, you know, dinners and lunches at these conferences, Henry mentioned all of the great social events that's happening, which are terrific. But if, for, if, for, if, you know, you might even just want to look through, like, for example, your LinkedIn list or your Rolodex, if you have one to see who do I know in Atlanta who I might want to meet while I'm at the conference? So whether it's a client, a former client, a colleague, maybe if you have an office there, if you're a law firm with an office in Atlanta, that you might want to set up a, a meeting with them just either at the conference or uh, at a location offsite. Really great way of to just to use your time wisely while you're at the conference. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's just a great opportunity to be in a great city to have a great time with uh, fellow litigators and to learn a ton. Henry, any other thoughts about the conference? Let me just give people a few impending deadlines. We have discount hotel rooms at the Lowe's in Midtown, but that discount expires on March 28th. So if you want to take advantage of the discounted rate, please make your registration by March 28th. And again, that's at the Lowe's Atlanta Hotel in Midtown. We also have discounts on registration for the conference but that discount disappears after April 5th. So please register for the conference by April 5th. And in addition to discounted rates for law students and young attorneys, let me go through the list of, of attorney groups that have a discount off of the regular registration rate. Uh, if you're an ABA member, you have a discount. If, you have a, if you're a section member, it's a further discount. And in addition, there are discounts for government, academic, public interest, judges, and in-house counsel. So there's really no reason not to come to the Section Annual Conference. Perfect. Well, just so uh, people remember, uh, the website there is ambar.org slash SAC2023. Henry Chalmers, thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA Litigation Section's Mental Health and Wellness Task Force. And I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Diana Uchiyama to the show. Dr. Diana is a lawyer and licensed clinical psychologist and serves as the executive director of the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program. Thanks for being on the show today, Dr. Diana. Thank you for having me, Dave. I appreciate the chance to be here. And uh, what is your quick tip for today? So today I thought I'd talk about destructive anger. When anger turns toxic, no one wins. And the reason I chose this topic is because I get a lot of people reaching out to me uh, with problematic behavior related to someone they know. Now, anger is a normal emotion. However, in certain areas in the practice of law, it's kind of condoned and encouraged. And oftentimes people don't know how to manage themselves in their personal life as effectively as they can just because they have this uncontrolled anger. 
Now, I tell people there's two sides of the coin to anger. There's people who overly express through these uncontrolled anger episodes, which feels overwhelming and is very, very destructive to interpersonal relationships with others. And when the person engages in the release of what I call hydraulic rage, it feels really good to the person who is using this strategy to release overwhelming stress and pressures. However, to the people around them, they feel overwhelmed, frightened, and they cannot understand why the level of anger is so high to the situation that allowed that anger to release. The thing about hydraulic rage is that it's very, very easy to overuse because there is a release of this pressure within the person's system. And so in the moment of release, the person who's experiencing this uncontrolled anger feels really good in the release mechanism. The problem is, is that there's all sorts of destruction in its wake. And so when you're in a, a courtroom setting and you get triggered, you may use this kind of rage or anger to engage uh, opposing counsel in a hostile fashion that could sometimes get you found in contempt of court, but sometimes intimidates your opponent. And so in the courtroom setting, it can be beneficial until it's not, until you're called out for aggressive, incivil behavior, which we know in this profession is a problem. In your personal life, it's any time you feel this buildup, let's say you have a very tough day at the office, you go home, and you get triggered by a very inconsequential behavior in your family system, whether it's your child, your significant other, and then you let all that anger out at them, they don't understand the buildup, right? They don't understand that it feels good to you and therefore you keep utilizing the strategy. They only see the toxic role it has on their ability to engage you in difficult subject matters or other personal issues. And so what happens is over time is people withdraw from you. Your personal lives become difficult. Your children may not talk to you. Your significant other, the person you may love the most, may withdraw. And sometimes people leave when that is the mechanism over and over again. The excuse I hear all the time is, well, I'm a trial lawyer. Well, I'm an attorney. Therefore, I can't turn it off. And that's completely inappropriate. That's completely false. And it's not normal, and it's not predictable, and therefore it's not fair. So we teach people a lot of mechanisms so they become aware that this type of interaction pattern is very destructive and does not lead to healthy consequences in their interpersonal relationships and also sometimes in the practice of law. So sometimes we have to teach people to recognize their limits and how to disengage from that release pattern that can really, really cause 
harmful consequences. So sometimes it's a meditative practice, right? Which nobody wants to hear. That's the way to do it. It's a timeout where you put yourself on a controlled timeout when you know that you have no ability to manage your issues related to anger. My word of the day, my saying of the day is the power is in the pause. It is not in the release, although it feels that way because there is a sense of satisfaction at unloading that. The power is always in the pause and managing yourself before the reaction is catastrophic or dangerous or toxic to those around you. And so I tell people all the time that the infusion of stressors over time become cumulative and we must manage ourselves. That is everyone's responsibility by learning when we are in overload mechanism that we must take a break, we must go somewhere else, we must not engage until we feel more in control of managing our anger, and our behaviors toward others. And so whether how that looks can be different. It can be a short break. It can be getting off the bench. It could be taking a break and going to the bathroom. It may require, if you have high levels of anger, and this has been a lifelong pattern, it may take a significant pause until you learn how to manage it more effectively in in the long term. Now, the other thing I hear a lot of is I don't engage in an aggressive way. Therefore, my anger management is better. So it can be two sides of the coin. When I said that, if you don't learn to express anger, you may engage in hostile behaviors in a passive manner that are also unhealthy. So I don't look at anger as if you're passive about it or you use hydraulic rage. There is toxicity on both ends. And so what we want to teach people is that they must learn where the brain goes when they're in highly volatile and feel high levels of anger. Do you tend to not say things and then do things in subtle behaviors that are also toxic, such as talking to people about someone else instead of talking directly to the person or telling others that this person is bad because you don't have the ability to say it directly. I want both people to recognize neither way is productive in the long term, and we must learn new strategies and mechanisms for how to express ourselves when we feel angry. Now, the frontal lobe of our brain where all good decision-making takes place often gets hijacked in high emotional situations. And we must learn that in order to manage ourselves better, that time sometimes is our best friend so that we can figure out healthy strategies to utilize in managing feelings and heightened emotions under stressful conditions. We don't have to allow our brain to get hijacked by the amygdala, which is the emotional control center of the brain. We must learn who we are, where we gravitate to, and how to manage ourselves appropriately moving forward, not just in the courtroom, but at home, 
with our children, with significant others, with the people in our lives, with customer service, with all the people who sometimes trigger us in ways they don't always understand. The goal is for you to take inventory and never allow the words, it's because I'm an attorney that this manner of behavior is okay. That is never the answer. And so we want to have people who don't use their voice learn to use their voice and those who overuse their voice to tone it down until they have emotional capacity. So that's my tip of the day related to anger. And I hope this helps people become more aware of the strategies they use when they are angry. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for bringing those practical tips to us today, Dr. Diana. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have a comment or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung, without the hyphen, at gmail.com, and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting you in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make sure to join us at the Section Annual Conference in Atlanta, April 19th through the 21st. The Section Annual Conference is the premier event for litigators. It brings together top litigation professionals from across the U.S. to discuss timely legal issues and the latest in trial advocacy, litigation strategy, and case management. The 2023 Litigation Section Annual conference provides a unique opportunity to learn and interact with in-house counsel, outside counsel, academics, government employees, and judges. We're also going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the litigation section with a special event at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. So to learn more and to find out about registration information, please go to ambar.org slash SAC 2023. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating at Spotify, it's super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.